Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. So the latest of our Resi Car series in support of this year's Resi Convention, we're going to be joined by Savills and we're going to be talking about biodiversity, the environment, sustainability and social value. And I'm going to be joined by Tom Hill, who's Director of Environmental Economics for Savills. He's an environmental economist. First up, would it be good if you could if you could explain to us what what's an environmental economist? Because it, it sounds a bit like a contradiction in terms, really. <laughs> Good morning. Um, so, I guess environmental eco- um, economist is um, a sustainability person or bod who basically um, plays with big spreadsheets a lot at the same time. So there's a lot of um, finding ways to measure the impact of different um, projects or activities and being able to communicate that in a more effective way. So, And you've been on, on kind of both sides of the fence, haven't you? you? You spent a number of years at PwC, you're a senior research fellow at IPPR, so you, you've got experience on both the, the, the pure business side and the science and academic side of the fence, which, which seems to be a, kind of a, a pretty good mix. Uh, in, in terms of the, the sorts of advisory work you're now doing? Yeah, I mean, I started my career off at a charity called Bioregional um, as well. So I've been in the NGO sector, the think tank sector, and in the um, corporate advisory sector as well. And it's interesting experience going through um, all those different places because you learn um, different skill sets and are exposed to different types of thinking in each one. Um, and it, it's quite a nice way of tying up um both the uh, this aspirational goal to hit uh, what you might call true sustainability in a very um, stretching and ambitious way uh, linked with the sort of um, corporate focus of actually what is practical and what can be delivered and um, actually how it, the sort of the what I call the yeah but how of how you get things to happen. Mm, and yeah that's the, the perennial question isn't it i mean let, i mean let's start w- with social value because that's something I, I know you're very passionate about and, and, and have, have really moved the dial on over the years in terms of thinking there um it, it's it is something that i think is is starting to permeate through the real estate world a little bit more but to what degree can it truly be applied you know, given that there's there's often a disconnect between the company that that plans something, the company delivers something, the company that does the construction, the company that manages the 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 the, the, the development afterwards. So how how is it possible to genuinely genuinely implement a, a social value strategy? And 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 fundamentally, how do you how do you how do you measure that impact? So uh, I think it's interesting with social value is that. Um, I think you can look at some uh, best pla- best practice examples of uh, what um, organisations are doing in terms of social impact, environmental impact, and there's definitely some organisations out there that are really um, stretching the dial. Now, for me, um, social value needs to be thought around um, early on, and rather than explicitly thinking it as a measurement exercise that gets bolted onto whatever is being done. 
the best way to think of social value is within the uh, conceptual stage in terms of what an organization or um, a group is planning on doing and thinking about all the different ways that um, they can maximize the positive environmental and social benefits um, as they develop their ideas and then building that into their um, the business model that they're pulling together and then off the back of that then then you begin to think about how you might measure that and then communicate it but it starts so with the planning going forward uh, so for someone that, that that's totally alien to this mm. what does it mean what, what are we talking about are we, are we talking about solar panels on roofs are we talking about uh, ground source air pumps are we talking about chucking cash at a local homeless charity what, what does social value mean i think in its purest form it is kind of what and you intuitively think it would mean it's like as we're so as we're building a development for example how can we build a development that maximizes environmental and social benefits as we go about doing it so on the environmental side it's um, all those things you just mentioned in terms of um, okay can we uh, as you say throw some um, solar panels on the roof or um are the types of building materials that we're choosing, can we choose um, green alternatives? And then on the social side, it, it's looking at things like um, maybe the value add um, that you're achieving um, as you build the development. So through things like um, the apprenticeships that you're enabling um, or the, the level of a um, accessibility that you have in terms of the people that you work with. Mm. Um, and, and in terms of you know, how... Uh, how that can be applied in a, in a truly meaningful way. What are some of the, the exemplars? I mean, who does it well? And what can people learn from those examples on, on, a, you know, on a practical basis? Yeah, so there's, there's quite a number of... Um so I think the best exemplars are the ones which take what I'd call the holistic approach. So they, they focus on um, both the environmental and the social aspect of the other developments. So um, so the, I, th I think um, the developer Hill is doing a lot at the moment in terms of um, their developments to build in uh, what you might call the true sustainability angle into that. And so I think, as I said earlier, the, the first part is actually trying to work out um, how to um, achieve the best impact. And the second part of that is then um, how do we quantify that and communicate that and pull it together into some sort of strategy. Mm. And, and I mean, folks, I mean, Hill have obviously, um, well, for people down Hill, Hill have got a couple of schemes in Cambridge and, and, and just thinking about the Cambridge-Oxford region, mm. there has been a lot of pushback from people living there around, well, against development, against planned transport infrastructure, such as the, the roadway and, and rail links. And and the, I guess the, the concern that people have there is around the impact on biodiversity, which I know is, is another area that, that you're focusing on. So mm. when, when people band around this phrase, biodiversity net gain, what are, what are they talking about? Because again, a lot of people will approach this with some degree of cynicism that says, okay, well, developers, you know, whether it not, I mean, not even just developers, but I mean, aviation is a great example. When you go on to the British Airways or Virgin website and you book your, uh, you know, you, you book your first class ticket to New York, uh, coughing out how many tons of carbon and, and you get at the end, pay 25 quid and British Airways will plant a few trees for you somewhere. And, and you look at that, certainly a lot of people look at that and go think, well, this is a load of nonsense. So I guess given that there is that cynicism, firstly, what does biodiversity net gain mean in the real world? And secondly, for people 
that that are very uh i, I guess anxious about the environment and for yeah. people that are concerned and that perhaps don't have as much trust as they could do in property developers let's be clear about that it's not a hugely trusted industry how how are you able to to square some of those circles and and mm. and i guess support in a meaningful way that that can potentially help build trust and, and above all generate a positive environmental outcome yeah so i i guess that the way that i, was, I would start um in my response to that is i i hear those concerns and i i I've um, certain amount of sympathy uh, with them as well in terms of, for example, what you mentioned about carbon offsets. And my view on carbon offsets is that there's there's quite a um, significant mix in the quality of that. You've got some um, carbon offsets that um, they're really a good one. I mean, come on. Well, so, yeah, if you if you look at them, they, so the, the ones would be extremely polite. Well, the one of the, the ones which tend to be quite good, they tend to be um, quite expensive as well. If uh, if I'm honest, but they um, some of them, for example, are actually um, sucking carbon out of the air and turning it into rock, and then by turning it into rock, um, they're the sort of become the gold standard of carbon offset, and it essentially is removed, and that's quite different to the ones which are um, essentially saying that we'll um, give some money to somebody else not to offset because. Um, it's, it becomes less clear about the what you call the additionality of that. So, well, exactly. I mean, this is the British approach, isn't it? We get rid of all the bendy buses in London. We send them all to Venezuela. This is just yeah, yeah. So, obviously, they're not they're not going to pollute the world over the other side of the of the Atlantic, are they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, I think um, there's a there's, there's a kind of a variation in terms of the quality of um, carbon offsets. With some of them actually being quite impressive, and other ones um, maybe less so. I mean, one thing I would say about carbon offsets is that actually, I mean, regardless of what we think about them, I, th I think that they are um, central to, for example, the Committee on Climate Change plans to achieve net zero, and they we will inevitably need them. We just need to make sure that they're good ones and that they um, achieve um, additionality um, and that um, we're not just using carbon offsets to essentially legitimise business as usual, but basically we've, we've decarbonised as far as we possibly can, and then carbon offsets are used to do all of the residual bits that um, we mm. don't have any other so options last for. We don't know. Yeah, well, it's, it, well, it's the icing on the cake, really, rather than yeah. the um, first port of call, I would say. So, 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 so focusing on, on, on biodiversity, where, you know, where there is a lot of development planned in areas like Cambridge, Oxford, and around the home counties, Bedford, lots of land coming forward there. And again, also across the northwest and, and, and north of England, where we're thinking a lot more about urban extensions and, mm. and creating new towns, so, you know, the perennial conservative manifesto pledge of building eco-towns, new towns. Oh, eco-towns, that was a Gordon Brown thing, actually, wasn't it, eco-towns? Mm. That was uh, famously created by the, uh, the the Labour government in the back of a taxi coming to a meeting. <laughs> Um, so, but regardless of the politics, obviously there is there is policy commitments on all sides of the fence to go and build a bunch of new housing in the middle of nowhere. So, how do we how do we deal with that impact? And 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 in thinking about biodiversity, how are we able to to measure it? And and, and above all, who's going to take control of making sure that that things get done? So, I mean, I think the. Again, a lot of this stuff is in the, in the nuance, really. So um, I've been quite impressed with 
the uh, plans uh, for biodiversity net gain as they've emerged so far. Now, I think you need to a bit make a bit of a distinction between um, the specifics of a, uh, the biodiversity of an area. So we're not necessarily talking about ancient trees and, and the angle which are dealt with in other parts of the planning process. But the actual principle of biodiversity net gain is essentially this intention there is to find ways to um, funnel and encourage greater investment into the creation of biodiversity and um, uh, habitats across the country and as a mechanism for doing that I think it's um, quite an effective um, structure that's been proposed and what what the government has effectively done is that they've worked with um, a group of a large group of um, ecologists to work out that where society is essentially deemed that um, development um, is appropriate or that um, that essentially local government or and planners have basically worked out whether they, they do want to create a development it's how do you first minimize the impact on those developments and um, if you are going to go ahead with those developments how do you actually offset or how do you actually create better habitats elsewhere and and, and how do you create the mechanisms that encourage that and in that sense what's being proposed is, is additional to what we had in the past whereas in the past you'd have the development and you wouldn't necessarily have um, that by biodiversity net gain. Now we have this commitment to achieving 10% biodiversity net gain as part of development. And in my view, that's a, a step forward um, as the uh, plans are currently uh, proposed. And what does that then entail? So what do you actually have to do? And, and what are the data that you would measure in ensuring that, 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 that those actions have been undertaken? So uh, Part of the criteria for biodiversity net gain is it's still being worked out. It's still in relatively early stages. But, but um, theoretically, what could you do? So let, let, let's just let's take a mythical 150 unit housing scheme in, in Cambridge. Mm. What what could that look like? What are, what are three or four of the um, of the KPIs that could be set around that that you'd measure? Yeah, so so what they what the colleges do basically um, is that they go on site and then they um, they work out what's already there. They do a, um, a survey to work out what's what's happening on the site, and they, they document all the different um, say habitats and, and types of biodiversity, the quality of that biodiversity, and the extent of that, and so on. And then they basically um, there's um, a metric that the government has created that basically quantifies what um, those into what they call biodiversity units, and say how um, much biodiversity that the existing site currently offers and then what they then do is they say well actually if you're going to achieve um, at least um, 10% biodiversity net gain what would you need to do either um, on certain areas of the site so you may say that okay we'll develop only 80% of this site and we'll set aside 20% for enhanced um, natural capital um, development or you might say, okay, we'll we'll go to a, um, a local area just off-site, and we will um, invest in um, create, um, improving the biodiversity in that area, and yeah. essentially getting the equivalent uplift of biodiversity um, that was achieved on um, on the site. And and how how workable is this within cities? I mean, cities like London have a lot of squares. They have a lot of of, of, of squares that were originally created to be the lungs of the city. Uh, you know, set out not just for, for, for posh people to go and, you know, sit around and read books in the middle of town, but fundamentally they were there to absorb um, 
nastiness and and to to help the city breathe and and that that is one of the defining factors certainly of london and it's one of the you know certainly the things that you notice if you go to manchester there isn't much green space in the city Mm. so in in thinking and applying this how can you how how could the real estate sector look to do this particularly you know particularly in in, on the resi side of things um uh, how could they look to apply that kind of thinking into more urban clusters well, I think there's, uh, I suppose I would separate this question out from the explicitly the biodiversity net gain angle and, and, and maybe talk about it a little bit more generally. But on the, on the more general side, um, I actually think if you go to, compared to other cities, say within Europe and so on, like London, for example, and some of the UK cities are actually relatively green and we have quite large parks compared to um, many cities around the world. And there's a relatively um, large amount of public green space within um, our cities. And there is one of the, it's a slightly vexed issue, but um, one of the um, environmental positives that has arisen um over through the through the covid period is a, a greater focus on the livability of um streets and areas so you've seen a movement towards um having more pedestrianized zones within um streets and also um a lot of um councils and local authorities are investing quite heavily increasing um, of improving tree cover within um, city areas and that has a number of benefits both in terms of the actual livability of those areas but also things like um, the cooling of buildings and and actually providing um, essentially psychological benefits to the people who live there. Now to return slightly to the biodiversity angle obviously the um, ability to um, do biodiversity in the game within cities um, is more limited. However, often on the development sites themselves, the biodiversity, uh, the existing biodiversity will be fairly limited in cities anyway. But um, that's where the offset angle comes in and where essentially investing in uh, offset in um, other areas um, comes into the process. Mm. And, and do you think, um, you know, do you think we'll start to see genuine innovation in 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 how we build homes you know because again we're thinking about that biodiversity net gain and thinking about broader impact clearly if we started using a lot less concrete that would you know that would create a lot more of a positive impact than you know a whole you know a thousand years of offset Mm. yeah i mean so my my take on this stuff is that i think that a lot of what we need to know so a lot of the technology that we need is already here in terms of for example net zero we already have um, um modern methods of construction for example and we already have this awareness um I, I think my take is that um the incentives and the the pressure to move forward with that um, are inevitably going to rise going forwards so if you look at the uh, government's commitment to net zero by 2050 uh, for example then what you can see is that um, although we've made good progress so far um, that has been quite heavily based on a couple of sectors around say power and the use of uh, white goods and uh, a lot of the other areas haven't made uh, the, the level of progress that's needed to keep us on track for net zero and we it's haven't made any progress really have we i mean you know we've, we've kind of resisted you know we've resisted the uh, a full-scale shift into nuclear which let's face it you could argue has been the only game in town in terms of moving us to to, to you know to decarbonize the grid quickly yeah and and then when you think about things like housing, 
you've had standards that have been lobbied against by by many of the the main developers you know the standards that we're looking at bringing in now on housing were promoted 10 years ago yeah well i think so we have made in my view we have made progress if you look at just the the emissions say um, that the uk is having now compared to 1990 progress has been made particularly within the sectors i just mentioned um yeah. and in, in other sectors in, in construction as well progress has also been made how however um what's clear is that um the current policies directory of where we're headed um is not enough um by quite a long way to get us on the net zero track so policy will need to be tightened going forwards um so the current trajectory will basically fail to to meet the 2050 ambitions yeah so if you look at the um the most recent version of the um committee on climate change report i think it um it identifies that by mid 2030s we're looking at probably a sort of uh, on track to be burning about 170 percent of the emissions that we'll be able to be, uh, be burning if we are to um, be on track for net zero which basically means to me that either the government will need to find ways to tighten um and targets and policies in order to get us on track or um it, it it becomes questionable how we would achieve it and that's the message that's coming sort of loud and clear from the committee on climate change in terms of the government yeah. needing to actually put those um policies in place to d- deliver net zero which i think yeah. it provides an exciting opportunity for um organizations and it should actually provide the uh, policy framework required to actually deliver and change behavior so i'm optimistic that that sort of change is coming yeah i mean i i guess you know thinking about that a little bit more are are some of the classifications fit for purpose because again everybody bangs on about net zero and, and but it's not net zero at all is it what they actually mean is is it's net zero if you're thinking about certain aspects and operation of a building so net zero in a building doesn't think about the concrete and steel that you've imported from China and God knows where else. It doesn't think about the the, the TVs, the PlayStations, all of the, the gadgets and things that, that actually consume tons of energy. It's simply focusing on the heating, ventilation and, and, and water, which seems a bit daft and a little bit misleading, doesn't it? Well, huh. I mean... There's lots of different definitions of net zero, and um, well, I'm going by the, the government, the, the government definition, sort of the UKGBC definition. But I mean, look, I, I accept I, your point, but 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 the broad the, the broad bucket is as I've described it, isn't it? Kind of. I mean, I think so. The, the UK government takes a territorial approach to net zero, like other countries around the world, um, and. The Committee on Climate Change um, says that it considers the impact associated with consumption emissions, so the emissions that are associated with the goods that we um, import from other countries. I mean, so uh, so when we think about how some of these rules need to tighten, what you know, what what meaningful things can can we can we can we do, or should we be should the government should we be urging government to to actually make interventions on? I think. It's what's needed is the policy clarity, um, and it, it often so it's often actually creating the level playing field required for businesses to work out what's needed by when and what these sorts of milestone targets and sector wide plans look like. And then in, in some cases, um, some sort of um, innovation funding and investment is also required as well. So that's particically the in, case. Into what? 
in, in, in so, so, so a, a good example um, of where that is being explored and deployed effectively at the moment is around um, industrial clusters, um, particularly around carbon capture use and storage, for example. And uh, the mo money is essentially needed because at the moment, um, businesses and organizations and communities essentially have um, freedom to um, release carbon emissions into the atmosphere. If you're actually designing a process where that gets buried under the sea and uh, gets capped off, that implies additional costs. So you need to actually create the policy frameworks that will um, make that more viable. But in the, in, in the meantime, you actually also need to um, help create the business clusters and the R&D required to actually work out how to respond to it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I mean, finally, obviously, the the, you know, the whole pandemic uh, and everything that's happened this year has has made people more sensitive to well to the environment, to well being. That you know, they've obviously had it thrown in their face a little bit working at home with families, and uh, you know, and, and, and you know, if you believe what Zoopla uh, and other people say, everyone's moving out of London into the countryside, mm -hmm. and that that remains to be seen. Um, I guess Savills will tell us if that is happening and, and they will benefit largely from it, I suspect. But that aside, <laughs> yeah. um, if you accept that we are a little bit more sensitive to, to ESG and other, uh, and, and the sort of social impact of, of what's around us, what are the questions that investors should be asking? So when investors are looking at, at opportunities, when they're looking at, at, at partnering with, with businesses in real estate, how should they be holding their feet to the fire? You know, everyone obviously would have seen that the big blow up around Boohoo, um, and, uh, and and its share price has taken a battering since. Um, you know, your your some of your former colleagues have walked away as auditors. Um, so, what what should investors be asking, and, and how should investors be holding real estate companies' feet to the fire, so to speak? Um, in, in, when it comes to ESG, when it comes to social value, when it comes to some of these things that we've been discussing today? So I think this area is still, um, as I said, it's still emerging to a, a greater or lesser extent. I think um, with the government's re-evaluation of the planning uh, guidelines and, and things like that, I think what comes out of that will set... Um, the criteria on which um, businesses are required to meet. And then I think the key thing to focus on is um, the degree to which those guidelines um, are compatible with us achieving net zero. And then when that does become more clear, it's then essentially seeing the extent to which businesses are complying with those and um, essentially looking for the ones which are trying to go um, above and beyond um, those requirements and to link um, social value and environmental benefit um, as an integral part into their business processes. So thank you then to Tom Hill, Director of Environmental Economics for Savills. And if you'd like to learn a bit more about, uh, about social value, about biodiversity, do drop Tom a line. You can find him uh, on, on Savills' website on LinkedIn. Uh, and he's very much up for having all sorts of conversations with you. About, uh, about much of this stuff and, and some, some fascinating insights there that hopefully will be of use to some people now looking at, 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 uh, at how they can affect positive change. Um, so thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us and suggest any ideas for future podcasts, do get in touch via our website. You can subscribe to these uh, podcasts by searching PropCast 
on Apple, Spotify, any other platform. And do stay tuned for the uh, next episode on thepropertyweek.com. Thanks a lot. Take care and see you soon.